Book Two, Chapters Three and Four of the Blue Lagoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. The Blue Lagoon by H. De Vere Stackpole. Chapter Three, The Demon of the Reef. The romance of coral has still to be written. There still exists a widespread opinion that the coral reef and the coral island are the work of an insect. This fabulous insect, accredited with the genius of Brunel and the patience of Job, has been humorously enough held up before the children of many generations as an example of industry, a thing to be admired, a model to be followed. As a matter of fact, nothing could be more slothful or slow, more given up to a life of ease and degeneracy, than the reef-building Polypher, to give him his scientific name. He is the hobo of the animal world, but unlike the hobo, he does not even tramp for a living. He exists as a sluggish and gelatinous worm. He attracts to himself calcareous elements from the water to make himself a house. Mark you, the sea does the building. He dies, and he leaves his house behind him, and a reputation for industry, besides which the reputation of the ant turns pale, and that of the bee becomes of little account. On a coral reef you are treading on rock that the reef-building polypifer of ages have left behind them as evidence of their idle and apparently useless lives. You might fancy that the reef is formed of dead rock, but it is not. That is where the wonder of the thing comes in. A coral reef is half alive. If it were not, it would not resist the action of the seas ten years. The live part of the reef is just where the breakers come in, and beyond. The gelatinous rock-building polypifers die almost at once, if exposed to the sun or if left uncovered by the water. Sometimes at a very low tide, if you have enough courage to risk being swept away by the breakers, going out as far on the reef as you can, you may catch a glimpse of them in their living state—great mounds and masses of what seems rock, but which is a honeycomb of coral whose cells are filled with the living polypifers. Those in the uppermost cells are usually dead, but lower down they are living. Always dying, always being renewed. Devoured by fish, attacked by the sea, that is the life of a coral reef. It is a thing as living as a cabbage or a tree. Each storm tears a piece off the reef which the living coral replaces. Wounds occur in it which actually granulate and heal as wounds do of the human body. There is nothing perhaps more mysterious in nature than this fact of the existence of a living land a land that repairs itself when injured by vital processes, and resists the eternal attack of the sea by vital force, especially when we think of the extent of some of these lagoons or atolls, whose existences are an eternal battle with the waves. Unlike the island of this story, 
which is an island surrounded by a barrier reef of coral surrounding a space of sea, the lagoon, the reef forms the island. The reef may be grown over by trees, or it may be perfectly destitute of important vegetation, or it may be crusted with islets. Some islets may exist within the lagoon, but often as not it is just a great empty lake floored with sand and coral, peopled with life different to the life of the outside ocean, protected from the waves, and reflecting the sky like a mirror. When we remember that the atoll is a living thing, an organic whole, as full of life, though not so highly organized, as a tortoise, the meanest imagination must be struck with the immensity of one of the structures. Veligan Atoll, in the lower archipelago, measured from lagoon edge to lagoon edge, is sixty miles long by twenty miles broad at its broadest part. In the Marshall Apelago, Rimsky-Korsakov is fifty-four miles long and twenty miles broad, and Rimsky-Korsakov is a living thing, secreting, excreting, and growing more highly organized than the coconut trees that grow upon its back, or the blossoms that powder the hoodoo trees in its groves. The story of coral is the story of a world, and the longest chapter in that story concerns itself with coral's infinite variety and form. Out on the margin of the reef, where Dick was spearing fish, you might have seen a peach-blossom-coloured lichen on the rock. This lichen was a form of coral, coral growing upon coral, and in the pools at the edge of the surf branching corals also of the colour of a peach-bloom. Within a hundred yards of where Emmeline was sitting, the pools contained corals of all colours, from lake-red to pure white, and the lagoon behind her corals of the quaintest and strangest forms. Dick had speared several fish, and had left them lying on the reef to be picked up later on. Tired of killing, he was now wandering along examining the various living things he came across. Huge slugs inhabited the reefs—slugs as big as parsnips, and somewhat of the same shape. They were a species of bec de mer, globe-shaped jellyfish, as big as oranges, great cuttlefish bones flat and shining and white, shark's teeth, spines of echini, sometimes a dead scarus fish, its stomach distended with bits of coral on which it had been feeding, crabs, sea urchins, seaweeds of strange colour and shape, starfish, some tiny and some the colour of cayenne pepper, some huge and pale. These and a thousand other things, beautiful or strange, were to be found on the reef. Dick had laid his spear down, and was exploring a deep bath-like pool. He had waded up to his knees, and was in the act of wading further, when he was suddenly seized by the foot. It was just as if his ankle had been suddenly caught in a clove-hitch, and the rope drawn tight. He screamed out with pain and terror, and suddenly and viciously a whiplash shot out from the water, lassoed him round the left knee, drew itself taut, and held him. End of chapter 3
Chapter Four. What beauty concealed? Emmeline, seated on the coral rock, had almost forgotten Dick for a moment. The sun was setting, and the warm amber light of the sunset shone on reef and rock pool. Just at sunset and low tide, the reef had a peculiar fascination for her. It had the low tide smell of seaweed exposed to the air, and the torment and the trouble of the breakers seemed eased. Before her, and on either side, the foam-dashed coral glowed in amber and gold, and the great Pacific came glassing and glittering in, voiceless and peaceful, till it reached the strand and burst into song and spray. Here, just as on the hilltop on the other side of the island, you could mark the rhythm of the rollers. For ever and for ever and for ever, they seemed to say. The cry of the gulls came mixed with the spray on the breeze. They haunted the reef like uneasy spirits, always complaining, never at rest. But at sunset their cry seemed farther away and less melancholy, perhaps because just then the whole island seemed bathed in the spirit of peace. She turned from the sea prospect and looked backwards over the lagoon to the island. She could make out the broad green glade beside which their little house lay, and a spot of yellow which was the thatch of the house just by the artu tree and nearly hidden by the shadow of the breadfruit. Over woods the fronds of the great coconut palms showed above every other tree, silhouetted against the dim, dark blue of the eastern sky. Seen by the enchanted light of sunset, the whole picture had an unreal look, more lovely than a dream. At dawn, and Dick would often start for the reef before dawn if the tide served, the picture was as beautiful. More so, perhaps, for over the island, all in shadow and against the stars, you could see the palm-tops catching fire, and then the light of day coming through the green trees and blue sky like a spirit across the blue lagoon, widening and strengthening as it widened across the white foam, out over the sea, spreading like a fan, till, all at once, night was day, and the gulls were crying, and the breakers flashing, the dawn-wind blowing, and the palm-trees bending as palm-trees only know how. Emmeline always imagined herself alone on the island with Dick, but beauty was there too, and beauty is a great companion. The girl was contemplating the scene before her. Nature in her friendliest mood seemed to say, Behold me! Men call me cruel, men have called me deceitful, even treacherous. I, ah well, my answer is, Behold me! The girl was contemplating the specious beauty of it all, when on the breeze from the seaward came a shout. She turned quickly. There was Dick, up to his knees in a rock-pool, a hundred yards or so away, motionless, his arms upraised, and crying out for help. She sprang to her feet. 
There had once been an islet on this part of the reef, a tiny thing, consisting of a few palms and a handful of vegetation, and destroyed perhaps in some great storm. I mention this because the existence of this island once upon a time was the means, indirectly, of saving Dick's life. For where these islands have been, or are, flats occur on the reef formed of coral conglomerate. Emmeline, in her bare feet, could never have reached him in time over rough coral, but, fortunately, this flat and comparatively smooth surface lay between them. "'My spear!' shouted Dick, as she approached. He seemed at first tangled in brambles. Then she thought ropes were tangling round him, and tying him to something in the water. Whatever it was, it was most awful and hideous, and like a nightmare. She ran with the speed of Atalanta to the rock where the spear was resting, all red with the blood of new-slain fish, a foot from the point. As she approached Dick, spear in hand, she saw, gasping with terror, that the ropes were alive, and that they were flickering and rippling over his back. One of them bound his left arm to his side, but his right arm was free. "'Quick!' he shouted. In a second the spear was in his free hand, and Emmeline had cast herself down on her knees, and was staring with terrified eyes into the pool of the water from whence the ropes issued. She was, despite her terror, quite prepared to fling herself in and do battle with the thing, whatever it might be. What she saw was only for a second. In the deep water of the pool, gazing up and forward and straight at Dick, she saw a face, lugubrious and awful. The eyes were wide as saucers, stony and steadfast. A large, heavy, parrot-like beak hung before the eyes, and worked and wobbled, and seemed to beckon. But what froze one's heart was the expression of the eyes, so stonely and lugubrious, so passionless, so devoid of speculation, yet so fixed of purpose, and full of fate. From away far down he had risen with the rising tide. He had been feeding on crabs when the tide, betraying him, had gone out, leaving him trapped in the rock-pool. He had slept, perhaps, and awakened to find a being, naked and defenceless, invading his pool. He was quite small as octopods go, and young, yet he was large and powerful enough to have drowned an ox. The octopod has only been described once in stone by a Japanese artist. The statue is still extant, and it is the most terrible masterpiece of sculpture ever executed by human hands. It represents a man who has been bathing on a low-tide beach, and has been caught. The man is shouting in a delirium of terror, and threatening with his free arm the spectre that has him in its grip. The eyes of the octopod are fixed upon the man, passionless and lugubrious eyes, but steadfast and fixed. Another whiplash shot out of the water in a shower of spray, and seized Dick by the left thigh, 
At the same instant he drove the point of the spear through the right eye of the monster, deep down through eye and soft gelatinous carcass, till the spear-point dirled and splintered against the rock. At the same moment the water of the pool became black as ink, the bands around him relaxed, and he was free. Emmeline rose up and seized him, sobbing and clinging to him and kissing him. He clasped her with his left arm around her body, as if to protect her, but it was a mechanical action. He was not thinking of her. Wild with rage, and uttering hoarse cries, he plunged the broken spear again and again into the depths of the pool, seeking utterly to destroy the enemy that had so lately had him in its grip. Then, slowly, he came to himself, and wiped his forehead, and looked at the broken spear in his hand. "'Beast!' he said. "'Do you see its eyes? I wish it had a hundred eyes, and I had a hundred spears to drive into them.' She was clinging to him, and sobbing, and laughing hysterically, and praising him. One might have thought that he had rescued her from death not she him. The sun had nearly vanished, and he led her back to where the dinghy was moored, recapturing and putting on his trousers on the road. He picked up the dead fish he had speared, and, as he rowed her back across the lagoon, he talked and laughed, recounting the incidents of the fight, taking all the glory of the thing to himself, and seeming quite to ignore the important part she had played in it. This was not from any callousness or want of gratitude, but simply from the fact that, for the last five years, he had been the be-all and end-all of their tiny community, the imperial master, and he would just as soon have thought of thanking her for handing him the spear as for thanking his right hand for driving it home. She was quite content, seeking neither thanks nor praise. Everything she had came from him. She was his shadow and his slave. He was her son. He went over the fight again and again before they laid down to rest, telling her he had done this and that, and what he would do to the next beast of the sort. The reiteration was tiresome enough, or would have been to an outside listener, but to Emmeline it was better than Homer. People's minds do not improve in an intellectual sense when they are isolated from the world, even though they are living the wild and happy lives of savages. Then Dick lay down in the dried ferns and covered himself with a piece of the striped flannel which they had used for blanketing, and he snored and chattered in his sleep, like a dog hunting imaginary game, and Emmeline lay beside him, wakeful and thinking. A new terror had come into her life. She had seen death for the second time, but this time active and in being. End of chapter 4